Welcome to Archway's Western Civilization History Podcast for Families. In our podcast, we look for the best of the West and discuss the stories, events, themes, and people that made the West different than the rest. Previously, Maria and I have been discussing the history and cultural impacts of the Roman Republic. While she is focused on the history of Julius Caesar, I've been diving into Roman language and culture. My last episode, I discussed Greek and Roman mythology and how they impacted the naming of our planets. In that episode, I made a promise that I intend to fulfill in this episode, to talk about the mythological figures that inspired the names of the asteroids, moons, and constellations. After this episode, you'll never look at the night sky the same way again. Instead of seeing dots pricking through a black canvas, you will see a colorful and rich tapestry woven together through story and lore tying humanity back to our most ancient ancestors. Now, just as a warning, this episode talks about myths relating to the mythological being known as Jupiter. He was a famous breaker of the Seventh Commandment and a serial abuser of women. And so you may want to consider listening to this episode without children who are unfamiliar with the birds and the bees. I will not go into the details, but the implications are there and may be confusing for young children. Let's begin with exploring the mythos of objects in our solar system's asteroid belt. In doing so, we will learn more about one of Rome's major deities, a minor deity, and a classic, tragic figure in myth. Now, as I mentioned before, Jupiter, aka Zeus, was chief among the gods after he freed his siblings from his dad, Saturn, aka Cronus, his stomach. One of Jupiter's siblings was Ceres, or as the Greeks called her, Demeter. As someone who loved creating life and watching it grow, Ceres, or Ceres, soon gave birth to a daughter, Persephone. She loved and cherished that daughter so much that she developed the reputation as a wonderful mother figure. According to legend, humans at this time subsisted entirely on acorns. Wanting something more to eat, they begged Ceres for help and Ceres' motherly instincts simply could not be stopped. She taught the humans how to acquire seeds, yoke oxen, plow fields, protect seedlings, and grow wheat. In honor of Ceres' gift, the humans called this new food cereal. Every year, the humans would ask Ceres for help to grow the cereal. They also asked for the ground to be fertile and the plants to be protected. Soon they started asking her for help with their own fertility and child-rearing. As a goddess of fertility, agriculture, and new life, Ceres quickly took the cake as the most important goddess in Rome. She became known for her symbol, the poppy flower, that blossomed across fertile pastoral fields. The Romans built Ceres a glorious temple right next to the Circus Maximus, the chariot racetrack. Every year, in mid-April, around this time, they held a festival to honor Ceres called Cerealia, In this festival, they would have chariot races, plays, and they would light foxes on fire and send them into the fields. Don't ask me why. During this festival, and all year long, really, the Romans sacrificed pigs to Ceres. Ceres picked pigs as the sacrificial animal since they are famous for eating seedlings, and she could not stand these little destroyers messing with her crops. Since Ceres was one of Rome's most important goddesses and her opinion held great sway, Pigs soon became the dominant sacrificial animal. 
This caused several major conflicts when the Romans started interacting with the Jews, who held that pigs were an unclean animal and that their sacrifice was an insult to the Lord. Today, Ceres has had a big impact on our culture. She has found her way into Shakespeare's The Tempest. The chemical element is cerium is named after her. Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov. The New Jersey State Seal and statues of Ceres sit atop the Missouri State Capitol, the Vermont State House, and the Chicago Board of Trade Building. Most importantly, her name was given to a dwarf planet that dwells in the asteroid belt. It was the first object in the asteroid belt to be discovered. It was first observed in 1801 by a Sicilian Catholic priest who named it after the Roman goddess to honor his hometown in Sicily. Sicily was home to the oldest temple of Ceres in the world. The symbol of Ceres is the sickle, and it looks like the symbol for Venus with a break in it. Ceres comprises 25% of the total mass of the asteroid belt. Though once considered an asteroid, it is so different in size and shape to its neighbors, it is now known as a dwarf planet. It also has water found in large underground ice deposits, leading scientists to hope they will find life there. It would be one last miracle for that mythical goddess Ceres to create life on an icy old rock in the asteroid belt. While Ceres took responsibility over giving birth, the god Cupid, or Eros in Greek, was responsible for the romantic infatuation of falling in love. This winged cherub was famous for his arrows of love that struck at inopportune times, provoking gods and mortals to do crazy things. In 1898, the largest near-Earth asteroid was given the name Eros. On February 14, 2000, a spacecraft went into orbit around Eros and became the first asteroid to have a spacecraft land on it one year later when the near-Shoemaker craft landed on its surface. Now, Cupid was the son of Mars and Venus, but he had almost nothing to do with his father. He instead became his mother's minion. They often went on escapades together, plotting ways to make people fall in love to get vengeance or reward people. Once, while on one of their adventures together, the titan Typhon started hunting them. Knowing that they weren't fast enough to escape on foot, Venus and Cupid prayed to Jupiter to save them. Jupiter, who had a thing for turning people into animals, turned Venus and Cupid into two fish that were tied together. They managed to escape Typhon by entering the river, but in the river, they could not move very fast. The two of them pulled each other in opposite directions. They were eventually caught by a fisherman, and Jupiter found the whole incident so amusing that he memorialized the event with the constellation Pisces, meaning fish. Babies born between February 19th and March 20th fall under the sign of Pisces, and starting around 1 AD, because of Earth's tilt and its relationship to the constellation, We've been in the age of Pisces ever since. This unique astrological event caused ancient Christians to think of Christ as the archetypal Pisces who initiated the age of fishermen, and Christians have thought of themselves symbolically as fish ever since. Anyway, like I said, Cupid, he caused a lot of problems with his love arrows. One time, when King Minos of Crete was launching an attack against Athens, the daughter of an Athenian prince was struck by Cupid's arrow as she was staring out at the oncoming force. She fell in love with Minos's son, who was standing on the prow of a warship. As a token of her affection, she helped Minos kill her father and conquer the territory. 
the city was sacked, and the Athenians were made to suffer for their resistance against Minos. Every year, seven noble youths and seven noble maidens were sent to Crete to fight and die in the labyrinth, the horrible home of the horrific hybrid man-bull known as the Minotaur. Ironically, it was an Athenian who helped create the Minotaur, and it was that same Athenian who was forced to make the labyrinth. The name of this Athenian was Daedalus, and he was horrified by the role he played in this tragic saga. He was an inventor and sculptor. He didn't want to create and imprison ungodly mutants. Nevertheless, King Minos could not forgive Daedalus for creating the Minotaur, and so Daedalus was imprisoned in his own labyrinth along with his son Icarus. Fortunately, Daedalus had a crafty idea. King Minos may control the land and he may control the seaways, but the sky is beyond his reach, he said. Even in that ancient era, this inventor had dreams of flight. In their cell, Daedalus worked nonstop crafting wings with eagle feathers and wax. When his work was finished, he had wings for himself and his boy. As they stood on the ledge, ready to fly out of the prison and across the sea, Icarus uh, was warned by his father, quote, The peril stands equal, my son. If you fly too low, the hungry waves may lick you up and drown you. But if you fly too high, the sun may melt the wax which binds your wings together. Fly not too high, my son, close quote. As they began their flight again and again, Daedalus found himself having to repeat this counsel to his son. Icarus was acting, well, like a typical teenager. After following the rules for a few minutes, he soon began swooping up and down, testing the limits of his father's invention. To both of their surprise and delight, the wings were sturdier than Daedalus had thought. Preparing for the most epic dive yet, Icarus flapped higher and higher than ever before, but eventually the wax of his wings melted and his feathers fell off. He plummeted to his death in the sea. Speaking of straddling the balance between flying too close to the sun and too close to the ground, the asteroid named after Icarus has an extremely eccentric orbit that swings it so close that it's close enough to Earth to make it a slight impact threat and then later its orbit shoots it across the solar system and swings by the sun so close that it comes even closer to the sun than the planet Mercury. I cannot think of a better name for it than the teenager who swooped dangerously high and low to the ground. Now that we've learned about important asteroids and their associated myths, let's learn about some moons in the solar system. To start off, Mercury and Venus have no moons, and we already learned about Earth's last episode, so let's head off to the red planet Mars and learn the myths behind its moons, Deimos and Phobos. Deimos and Phobos, or Fermido and Terror in Latin, are twin brothers and gods who often have had a hand in the epic war stories of Greek mythology. Like Cupid, they are sons of Mars and Venus, Unlike Cupid, these twins worked hand-in-hand hand with their father, not their mother. They were engaged in the family business of making war as hellish as possible. Deimos was the personification of dread before the battle, and Phobos was the personification of horror during the battle. The brothers accompanied their father Mars, who was the personification of madness, to every battle, and they often brought their sister Eris, or Discordia, to come along as well. She was the personification of strife. 
Together they were the madness, the anticipation, the horror, and discord of war. In our solar system, Deimos and Phobos are appropriately the two moons of Mars. Phobos is dangerously close to Mars, so close that the tidal forces of Mars give it stretch marks. Scientists predict that in the next 30 million years, it will fall apart completely. Standing atop the surface of Phobos, Mars looms in the sky 85 times larger than the moon appears in our own sky. Phobos has such a small amount of gravity on it that you would be able to jump over the 2,722-foot-high Burj Khalifa in a single bound. Deimos has even less gravity. In fact, one wrong step and you could accidentally fling yourself into orbit. Now, as I said, the twin sister Eris, she liked to help in battles when she could, but she also sowed discord in other places as well. For example, she stirred up neighbors to fight against one another through jealousy, and she made married couples fight one another over miscommunications. Most famously, when she was snubbed of an invitation to the hottest wedding in town, she was so upset that she tossed a golden apple, the apple of discord, into the wedding party. The apple was inscribed with the words, quote, to the fairest one, close quote. Now, it didn't specify who, and there were plenty of contenders there. Naturally, the three goddesses in attendance, famed for their beauty, Aphrodite, or Venus, Hera, or Juno, and Athena, or Minerva, all claimed that the apple was theirs. They went to Zeus to have him arbitrate between the three of them. Rather than risk offending his sister, wife, and daughter simultaneously, Zeus wisely told the mortal Paris that he would get to choose who got the apple. The hapless Paris agreed to the terms, and all three goddesses immediately began attempting to bribe Paris. Now Paris rejected the infinite wisdom of Athena and the political power that Hera had offered, and instead he took Aphrodite's offer. He would be wed to the most beautiful woman in the world. This decision led to Aphrodite sending Cupid out to shoot Helen, the wife of the Spartan king, with his arrow of love. Helen became infatuated with Paris, and the two eloped to Troy. To make a long story short, this resulted in the utter desolation of the city of Troy by a Spartan and Athenian army. And if you remember the episodes Maria and I had a few months ago about the Spartans and Athenians, well, you know, they're pretty powerful foes. In our solar system, Eris, like Ceres, is a dwarf planet. Eris is the most massive and second largest known dwarf planet in the solar system. And Eris has a moon as well, named Dysnomia, after the daemon of lawlessness. Just like her namesake, Eris brought discord to the world when she was discovered in 2005. Originally, since she was larger than Pluto, the IAU thought that she should become the 10th planet. But then they decided to create a new classification instead, that of a dwarf planet, and Pluto was demoted to that classification to join the ranks of Ceres and Eris. The ramifications of that decision in 2006 can still be felt today. There are many who will vehemently defend Pluto's rightful place as the ninth planet. And so it can fairly be said that Eris, this dwarf planet, has brought discord and even war to our world. And that's just the beginning. In the same week Eris was discovered, the dwarf planet Haumea was also found. 
but the team that found it first and the team that announced it first were different teams, and there were accusations of fraud and all sorts of nastiness associated with that debacle. So thanks a lot, Eris. Moving past Mars and its two moons, we arrive at the next planet, Jupiter, and its fluctuating number of around 80 moons. 53 are named. That's too many to cover for the scope of this podcast, but the four largest, most important moons, called the Galilean moons, Io, Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto, let's dive into the myths behind those. As we do so, it will also be a chance for me to discuss the constellations Taurus, Aquarius, and Aquila. Let's start with Io. In Greek myth, Io was a mortal woman and priestess of the goddess Juno, or Hera. Juno was Jupiter's husband. Unfortunately, Io had a forbidden crush on Jupiter, which haunted her dreams. Hearing about this opportunity, Jupiter came down one day to visit her and make her dreams come true. While they were flirting, Juno came down to check on Jupiter to make sure he wasn't with another woman. Thinking quickly, Jupiter transformed Io into a cow. So when Juno asked, what are you doing? Who is that? Jupiter innocently responded, I'm just standing here with this cow. Juno knew that Jupiter was playing dumb, and so she played along. Wow, Jupiter, this is such a beautiful cow. Can I have it? Uh, um, sure, honey, it's yours, Jupiter said, trying to stay out of trouble. And so Io was Juno's pet cow for many years, until Jupiter ordered Mercury to secretly set her free. The first Galilean moon of Jupiter, the planet, is named after Io. Jupiter the god's secret lover. It is a fiery, volcanic planet that sits in the middle of Jupiter's radiation belts, resulting in a ring of charged plasma encircling the moon. In Greek myth, Europa was another mortal woman, part of a royal line and a descendant of Io. Her story is the opposite of Io's. Instead of of her having a crush on Jupiter, Jupiter had a crush on her. And instead of her getting turned into a cow, Jupiter turned himself into a cow. You see, Jupiter wanted a chance to meet with Europa, but he was always interrupted by his pesky wife or other people. And so one day, while Io was tending to her father's herds, Jupiter turned into a bull and disguised himself among the cattle. While petting the bull, Jupiter launched her onto his back and ran into the ocean with Europa. He turned back into himself and explained the situation, and she agreed to be his lover. Europa is now the name of an icy ocean moon of Jupiter. It is covered with geysers, ice volcanoes, and 100-foot tides and a deep, deep ocean. Now, to commemorate this meat-cute, Jupiter, the god, created the constellation Taurus, the bull. It is a bull's head with two big horns sticking out. Taurus is a large and prominent constellation in the northern hemisphere's winter sky between Aries to the west and Gemini to the east. To the north lies Perseus and Ariga, to the southeast Orion, to the south Ariadnus, and to the southwest Satis. In late November, early December, Taurus reaches opposition and is visible the entire night. By late March, it is setting at sunset and completely disappears behind the sun's glare from May to July. Any babies born between April 20th and May 20th are born under the sign of Taurus. Going back to the moons of Jupiter, Ganymede was named after a young shepherd who lived far to the east near where Troy used to be. 
his youthful energy and humility, along with him being the most handsome man in the world, made him a candidate to replace Jupiter's daughter as cupbearer to the king of Olympus. Jupiter's daughter was getting married, and she didn't want to be her daddy's butler anymore. And so Jupiter offered the job to Ganymede, who happily accepted. Jupiter swooped down as an eagle and picked up the lad, and brought him to Olympus, where Ganymede received eternal youth and the adventure of a lifetime. Ganymede is now the name of the largest moon of Jupiter, and the largest moon in the solar system. It's a moon so big that it has its own magnetosphere, along with lots and lots of frozen water. Jupiter honored his cupbearer with the creation of two constellations, Aquarius, meaning cupbearer, and Aquila, meaning eagle. Aquarius is supposed to look like an overflowing chalice, and it is right next to Aquila, the eagle, symbolizing the eagle that brought Ganymede the duty of cupbearer. Below Aquarius is Pisces, the fish, being dumped out of Aquarius's vase. Babies born between January 20th and February 18th are born under the sign of Aquarius. The fourth and final Galilean moon is Callisto. In myth, Callisto was one of the nymph attendants of Artemis, the goddess of hunting and wild animals. She, along with Artemis and several other nymphs, lived out in the forest in a female-only and perfectly chaste group of nature enthusiasts. Absolutely no boys were allowed in their forest. Every day the girls ran with the wild animals, played in streams, practiced their archery, climbed trees, went bird watching, etc. One fateful day, Jupiter, disguised as Artemis, snuck into the all-female group and had his way with Callisto. And Artemis's law of chastity for the girls, well, he broke it. A few months later, while bathing in a hot spring together, the other girls saw that Callisto was now pregnant. Artemis was furious. Callisto had violated their rule of having no boys in the forest, so she transformed Callisto into a great bear. As a bear, Callisto eventually gave birth to a human child, Arcus, the son of Jupiter. Knowing she couldn't raise him, she dropped him off for Jupiter to raise. As the babe grew to a boy, Jupiter taught him to be a great hunter. Unfortunately, he was a little bit too good. One day, thinking his birth mom was just another bear, he was able to track her and was about to kill her. Jupiter had to swoop down and intervene to prevent the matricide. And as an apology for the whole affair, he turned Arcus into a bear as well and allowed the mama bear to finally spend time with her cub. They bonded instantly. And so, Jupiter made them into two constellations, Ursa Major, meaning Great Bear in Latin, and Ursa Minor, meaning Little Bear, thus allowing the mother and son duo an eternally sweet reunion. In our solar system, Callisto is a radiation and volcano-free moon of Jupiter with many craters. The greatest of these craters is Valhalla, the largest crater in the solar system, 2,500 miles wide. While on the topic of Artemis, let's talk about Orion real quick. There was once a mortal son of Neptune named Orion, who through his skill won the opportunity to hunt with Artemis, and the two developed a platonic friendship of mutual respect. And so, Artemis left her females only enclave to slay beasts with Orion, the great hunter. Poseidon had gifted Orion the ability to walk on water and leap over valleys in a single bound and so he was a delightful hunting companion. 
Together they slayed hundreds of boars and monsters. Proud of his work, Orion proclaimed, There is no creature that I could not bring down with my strong spear or my swift arrows. Artemis facepalmed as Jupiter overheard this boast. Jupiter's brow darkened, and in his anger he sent a giant scorpion to attack Orion. The contest between the hunter and the scorpion ended as fast as the scorpion could flick its tail, slaying Orion instantly. Jupiter raised the victorious scorpion into the heavens, creating the constellation Scorpius. Artemis, wishing a more fitting end to her friend and hunting companion, urged her father Jupiter to also raise Orion up to the stars. Jupiter did so, but not in a respectful way. He placed Orion so that he would be constantly chased by Scorpius forever. And he placed Orion just out of reach of the Pleiades, the seven super-hot babes that Orion had had a crush on. You can see all three constellations in the night sky, Orion with his belt and bow, Scorpius and its long tail, and the cluster of beautiful blue sisters. Moving past Jupiter, we arrive at Saturn and its dazzling 82 moons. We could probably do a whole episode on the myths behind the moons of Saturn, with moons named after Atlas, Calypso, Enceladus, Hyperion, Iapetus, Janus, Mimas, Pan, Pandora, Prometheus, Titan, and Rhea. These moons, like Saturn, are mostly named after the Titans, the chaotic proto-gods and siblings of Saturn. When I discussed Saturn, the father of Jupiter, last episode, I actually covered several of these stories, and so I won't need to go into them again here. As you'll recall, Titan was the name given to the proto-gods, Hyperion was the Titan father of the sun god Helios, Rhea was Jupiter's mother, whose kids kept getting eaten by Saturn, and Enceladus was among the forces of chaos I mentioned that Jupiter had to overcome to take his place as chief god. Enceladus was an evil giant and a source of earthquakes and volcanoes. Now, the moons named after Titan and Enceladus are described by NASA as two of the most compelling bodies for study in our solar system. Enceladus is the most reflective body in the solar system. This makes it extra cold. It also has piercing blue tiger stripes running across it that come from the stretching that Saturn's gravity enforces upon it. Enceladus's freshwater geysers and the plumes of ice and snow they create that feed into Saturn's rings are one of the natural wonders of the solar system. Titan is fascinating because it is the second largest moon in the solar system, and it is the only moon with a substantial atmosphere. It is the only place besides Earth known to have liquids in the forms of rivers, lakes, and seas. It even has clouds and rain. Its seas are hundreds of feet deep and hundreds of miles wide. However, these liquids are not water like you'd expect. Rather, they are hydrocarbons, methane and ethane. These goopier liquids make the waves crash in slow motion, and the lower gravity and thick atmosphere makes the methane rain fall as slow as snowflakes. Nevertheless, Titan does have water on it, stored as ice. It would be a fun place to visit because, like Daedalus and Icarus, in the soupy atmosphere, all you would need to fly by your own power would be some wings strapped to your arms and some vigorous flapping. 
Moving past Saturn, we get to Uranus and its 27 moons, most of which are named after characters that appear in or are mentioned in the works of William Shakespeare and Alexander Pope. And that is beyond the scope of this podcast, so we're skipping them. So that takes us to Neptune. Neptune has 14 moons named after minor water deities. Its biggest moon, Triton, is named for Neptune's sun. Triton turned out a bit odd for a baby boy since he had a fish tail and barnacles on his shoulders and his skin was blue. It turned out he was the first of the race of merfolk who are sometimes called Tritons. The Roman poet Virgil writes that it was Triton who killed Misenus, the trumpeter of the Trojan ancestor of Romans, Aeneas. The moon Triton is a winter wonderland covered in nitrogen, methane, carbon monoxide, and water glaciers dusted in nitrogen and methane snows. Its pressure is so high it can shoot liquid nitrogen from its geysers, and its wacky atmospheric makeup makes it strangely bright and colorful. So it doesn't have too much in common with its namesake, other than being weirdly blue and filled with water. Now, believe it or not, the dwarf planet Pluto has five moons, and they are all named after underworld themes in classical mythology. The biggest moon, Charon, actually rivals Pluto in size so much, at half the diameter and one-eighth of the mass, that they are actually gravitationally locked to each other, meaning they are stuck facing one another. They also are closer than any moon and planet, being the same distance from one another as Shanghai is to Buenos Aires. The other moons, Nix, Styx, Kerberos, and Hydra, are all very tiny. They are all named after prominent features, monsters, and individuals in the gloom of the classical underworld. And so let me take a moment to describe that world using this excerpt from Robin Waterfield's The Greek Myths. Quote, Through the gloom of Pluto's underworld realm, flit the feeble remnants of men of old, pale spirits, gibbering and forlorn, and dust and mist is all their food, and the river sticks never to be recrossed, surrounds the domain of Pluto, as ocean surrounds the continents of Earth, and the Milky Way surrounds the heavens. Charon, the ferryman, was born of Nyx, goddess of night. Like his mother, he is dreaded by all as he transports the dead across the river Styx to their eternal home, if they bring the coin to pay him. Otherwise, they remain as pale ghosts, whimpering feebly on the banks of the river and imploring all comers for a proper burial, but those who come are only the dead themselves and can help no more." Charon leads his passengers to the gates of Hades, guarded by the fearsome Kerberos, and like the nine-headed sea serpent known as the Hydra, this hellhound is also multi-headed. He uses his three heads to guard the gates of the underworld to prevent the dead from leaving. And with that, we've covered Pluto and have thus completed our tour of the solar system through the lens of Greek myth. And with Pluto as our last stop, I appreciate you listening to today's episode. It was so much fun researching and making it. I hope it expanded your mind and helped put the puzzle pieces of mythology and astronomy together, and maybe, just maybe, blew your mind a little bit. 
Obviously, due to the limits of time and mortal attention span, I could not cover every myth or every moon or every constellation that I would have liked to have done. But I hope that I've sparked your curiosity to dive deeper into these rich stories and into our beautiful solar system. If you'd like to learn more about the Greek gods, I encourage you to read Robin Waterfield's The Greek Myths, Stories of the Greek Gods and Heroes Vividly Retold. If you want to learn more about our solar system and the interesting quirks and sights of each of our planets, you should read The Intergalactic Travel Bureau Vacation Guide to the Solar System by Koski and Grevich. Thanks for listening today, and that's history for you.